all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Hello. <laughs> Just a subdued one. I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. We're almost done. We're almost done. <laughs> I was going to try my Joker impression for that laugh, but I can't do it like Joaquin Phoenix can. Oh, you just came from watching the Joker, I, so you're very I excited. Did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I didn't even think about it until I was outside smoking a cigarette. Like, mm-hmm. that was probably the worst movie to see right before filming, or filming, right before uh, recording this. Really? Yes. Uh, should we not go into any more? Is there a spoiler alert? No, not really. The Just the, the the theme of the film is oh, very okay. much about uh, injustice and gotcha. anarchy yes. and okay. So understood, understood. Um, it really is an excellent movie. I've never really seen anything like it, and it okay. really could have only been made today. Yeah, really. A lot of people are saying it's great. Mm-hmm. People are saying. People are saying. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what an accomplishment. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, follow us Insta, Twitter, Facebook at All Bad Things Pod. Join our discussion group. We've had a bunch of people joining on Facebook. Yes, we have. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Um uh oh housekeeping from last actually two weeks ago. Uh one of our listeners and I forgot. To look up who it was. I'm so sorry. Anyway. And you forgot to write it down. Yes. <laughs> uh, let us know that, remember Nigel Whitbread, the yes. architect of Grenfell? Yes. He actually did live to see Grenfell oh, he destroyed. Did. Yeah. He oh. died this year. Yeah, because we'd said in the first episode that he died like right before. Yeah, that was, I was incorrect oh. on that. Okay. Mm-hmm. He died this year. So, yeah. Well, good for him. He, it wasn't his. I understand. His I understand. fault, really. I mean, it was the cladding. He did not have anything to do with the cladding, to my knowledge. So, I don't. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you were maybe a little harsh on little Nigel Whitbread. Maybe. <laughs> um, but uh, also, what else was I gonna say? Oh, uh, let a couple of uh, small curse words in last week. Apologies for that. It's been really hard not to curse. Well, they're curse words that you can say on TV, so they don't count. They are. They're not uh, PG-13 curse words no. or network curse words. So, yeah. Ah, what are you drinking? I am drinking my national local beer. <laughs> because I'm allowing you to have our last fancy beer. Thank you. From Raleigh <laughs> Brewing Company, Moravian Rhapsody. That is good. Check Pilsner. Yeah. Um, plug for Raleigh Brewing, by the way. I was going to do hold an, a work event there, and, well, frankly, just nobody showed. <laughs> nobody was going to show or register. And I had signed a contract with them that included that I would buy a minimum bar tab, and I canceled a few days ahead of time. I'm like, look, I know I still owe you the money. And they're like, don't worry about it, which was really kind of them because yeah. I was contractually obligated to pay them. And they were like, no, no worries. And I thought that was really classy of them, so I appreciated it. And we went and bought 50 bucks of beer anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's now, now it's all gone. Now we, we drank, we went through that a, a little frighteningly quickly. 
<laughs> Which is a testament both to how good their beer is and how much we need to curb our drinking. <laughs> yes. Mm. But this is a tough topic not to drink during. Very also not to so. curse during, but that, at least we're too. doing one out of two. Because <laughs> um, one out of two ain't bad. <laughs> who, who did that song? It's actually Meatloaf. Uh, oh. Two out of three <laughs> two ain't bad. Two out of three ain't but. bad. That's right. <laughs> So we are wrapping up Grenfell Tower this week. So let's get to it. Uh, I'm going to start this the same way I've started the past two. On June 14th, 2017, a massive fire engulfed the Grenfell Tower council flats, killing 72 people and injuring dozens more. Sources for this episode, a lot of them will sound familiar ones I've been using. The Guardian, The Independent, The Telegraph, BBC, Metro.co.uk, The Evening Standard, The Grenfell Inquiry, and The Grenfell Action Group. The United Kingdom has a lot of very good newspapers, so there's been a lot of sources. Fake news, folks. Yeah, well. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get over how funny that was. Anyway. (laughs) Nobody knows what we're talking about. Oh, it doesn't matter. It might. Uh, it has to do with turkey. Yes, let's get our, let's get our laughs out now while we can. Yes, because this is going to get worse from here. So, I am so so glad that we're we're this is the end of the line for this topic for us, not for real life, but for us anyway. So the first episode was very foreboding. Last week's episode was incredibly depressing and sad. And this episode's going to be infuriating. And if you haven't listened all the way back to Ronin Point, which was the episode before we started this series, again, I would totally suggest starting there, listening sequentially. Yes, because these things tie into each other. Absolutely. And I also have to say there is so much information about this topic because it happened so recently, because it's still ongoing, the whole aftermath. We could never possibly cover it all. A lot of people are putting really interesting and good information out on our discussion group. So I would recommend joining that if you haven't already. Remember, all you have to do is answer one question, and I don't know is an acceptable response. Just anything. (laughs) Anything logical is okay response. All I ask is what is one disaster you're interested in. So if you don't answer, you don't get let in because it means you're spam. Sorry. All right. So... We're going to be doing all the aftermath today, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, no small topic. So we literally stopped at the end of the fire. Mm-hmm. And we didn't talk at all about the immediate aftermath. So that's where we're going to start. So not only was Grenfell Tower, the fire, obviously a huge national tragedy in the United Kingdom, but it caused an enormous amount of immediate confusion and fear in the immediate area, obviously, right? So residents in nearby buildings were evacuated for their home from their homes because it was unclear whether the building would collapse, mm-hmm. right? Because that's a legitimate fear. I mean, that's looking at it. That probably would have been my first thought when the whole thing is going is like this thing's coming down. It it got gutted and then it's mm-hmm. just gonna right collapse. Plus, plus we've seen much we ha- taller yes. buildings come down from a fire. So. Well, from I, I think anytime somebody thinks of a tower collapse, probably have the vision of the twin towers in mind at the time, and and that. I mean, that's, those were huge buildings. That that caused plenty of death and destruction just from them falling. Mm-hmm. This is a much smaller building, but they but were still. taking action to make sure that nobody was going to get hurt in the aftermath, yeah. right? 
And remember, Grenfell, so there was the tower, and then there were those three finger walkway mm-hmm. buildings. Yeah, so those residents, residents of that building, were evacuated and were affected much longer term because they were more permanently displaced. Their boiler was destroyed in the fire, which meant they had no hot water access. So their homes were ascent, technically livable, but not really in any sort of modern sense, right? And Grenfell Tower was located close to a tube station at Latimer mm-hmm. Road. So there were some partial closures to subway lines. Part of the, a nearby highway, the A40, was closed. And this was all happening. Remember, this this fire started like in the middle of the night or very early middle night, like just before 1 a.m. On, tu- on a Wednesday morning. Wait, Wednesday, Tuesday. Oh, man. I think it was Wednesday. No Tuesday. Anyway, during a weekday in the middle of the week. So when a tube station is shutting down and parts of a highway are shutting down into the morning commute hours in a hugely congested city, obviously it caused a lot of repercussions. Not that these are the most important repercussions, but still, it basically affected everyone in the area, period, one way or the other. So the first victim identified was a 24-year-old Syrian refugee. Now, this is identified, remember, meaning they found out exactly who he was. Was a 24-year-old Syrian refugee named Mohammed Al-Hajali. I had it ready to pronounce and then just doubted myself. (laughs) The full scope of the death toll was obviously not known at first, and initial reports, initial reports were around 17 deaths, so clearly they did not know the scope of it. And that would obviously rise in the following days and weeks and even months, as we know the last victim died of her injuries in January of 2018, so it was a solid six months before the final death was counted. Um, And then there were also reports of excessive deaths. Deaths like 80 deaths was a common number thrown around, at least 80 deaths. So that's all to say. There was a lot of just confusion and misinformation out there. Um, another thing, Behelu Kabede, whose uh, refrigerator was the thing that sparked the fire, mm-hmm. but should not have caused any additional harm, really, because the cladding shouldn't have um, caught on fire. Uh, he was kind of reamed in certain point parts of the tabloid presses saying that he started the fire. He ended up having to get uh, an attorney to clear his name, basically. So there's just all sorts of stuff that people had to sift through, basically. Sniffer dogs were sent into the building to search for bodies. Structural engineers had to be called in to make sure that it was safe for even firefighters to go back into the building. Again, being concerned of a collapse, either complete or partial. And initially, 400 people were reported missing. Now, we know that that's way more than the people who actually ended up being dead, but um, there, and even more than the estimated occupants of the tower, but there's a lot of reasons for this, right? So first of all, plenty of families who were living together got separated during the fire and had difficulty locating each other, right? So um, maybe like if, if one family member went downstairs to see what happened but didn't and couldn't go back in, but then another family member, you know, left, maybe they left quickly and left their cell phones behind or been hospitalized. So 
so that people ended up in different places. And obviously, if you end up separated and unable to contact a loved one, you're going to get pretty scared pretty fast and immediately report them missing, wanting to make sure they're okay. Additionally, the exact number of residents at Grenfell during the fire may not have been known at the time because some people were renting out rooms, like Bahelu Kabere, or subletting, which wasn't necessarily legal, but did happen. And so not all residents of each flat were necessarily listed on the lease. So it was hard to even ascertain who was actually was there who? at the time. Yeah. Also remember it was Ramadan. And so people who were breaking fast may at that time, remember it was after sundown, maybe had left the tower to go visit friends to break the fast or had friends over to break the fast. So people were coming and going or could have come and gone. And so it was unsure who was there and who wasn't. Plus, there are other factors like people were reported missing by multiple people right? Different people at different times or that there were misspellings. So it seemed like there were actually two or three different people when it was just one, plus just the absolute chaos going on at the time, plus the disorganization of the whole site, which we'll get to in just a minute. So that led to a lot of confusion and anxiety about where people were, understandably. So the horrible tragedy and chaos were contrasted by the immediate outpouring of support from others in the area. And it was really moving. (laughs) What did the cats just do? Their little ball. Oh, okay. Their little jingle ball thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry. The, The just, again, a little break in the horribleness but this is actually a nice a nice part of it you said you saw some of this footage too Mm -hmm. right so local residents volunteers from around the country churches private companies charities everybody really responded quickly to come to the emotional and physical aid of their affected neighbors it was very sweet to watch the footage and everything so within a matter of hours massive amounts of food, clothing, personal care items, toys, diapers, and other household and living necessities were donated and organized to help survivors and displaced residents to the point where the coordination centers couldn't take any more donations. They actually had to refuse donations because they didn't even have enough space for it all. That's how overwhelming it all was. I have a couple pictures for you here. This is literally like the morning of, Mm -hmm. and it's just massive how much people wanted to help. It was very moving. Yes. Yeah. You've you've not said anything. I'm so tired of talking. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to take a sip. Okay. There's really, uh, there's not much... uh... If I'm here to be, if I'm here to be the ham, there's not really too much no, going on no, for me this episode. Not ham, just even something. I don't know. <laughs> I just felt like that was really long-winded. Anyway, uh, so many offers of temporary lodging for those displaced were made that it didn't take long until offers had to start being refused. Like, look, sorry, everybody's. <laughs> Thank you for your kindness, but everybody actually has a place to stay tonight, which again is wonderful. Restaurants opened their doors to those affected, offering free meals, including at least one restaurant owned by celebrity chef Jamie Oliver. I don't know who that is. You don't know who Jamie Oliver is? I don't know my celebrity chef. He's chefs. the naked chef. 
That's his his what? moniker. He's he, not. He cooks while he's naked. No, that's gross. <laughs> that is gross. And, and against like pretty much every health code violation. Exactly that right. Could possibly be. I'm assuming they have a similar code in the UK. I hope so I at least. So. <laughs> Counselors and clergy members offered emotional and mental support services. And in summing up the nature of the response by citizens, one resident said, quote, it could have been me. It could have been any of us. But my sense was we're Londoners. We help one another out. I actually saw that, that person. Yeah. In a, yep. I remember that. It was really nice. And that's, yeah. that's how I felt, too, uh, reading about the after. Like it, I think maybe to us it kind of seems outpouring and generous but i think with londoners and uk people in general it's just what you do it's what you do well that's what one london journalist said quote this is blitz spirit yeah absolutely like hey Mm -hmm. we've been through stuff like this before before. (laughs) much worse than this before actually and our whole city has been destroyed twice right so and we pull together it's mm -hmm. what we do there's a uh there's a Perceived, I don't know if it's true or not, but a stoicism of the British, the keep calm and carry on in the sense of duty and God and country, that is very admirable. I absolutely think so. It's very definitely. I just think it's at this point, you know, I think I've said it before. It's just a part. It's in their DNA. Yeah, I think so. It's just how you're raised. Mm -hmm. Like keep calm and carry on. Like help one another, and that's it's your duty. Mm -hmm. It's what you do. Your civic duty. Yes, it's what you do, and that's very lovely. So in addition to donating physical goods and space, members of the community wrote notes of support for their neighbors at various sites. Like there are lots of famous pictures of like walls Mm. with notes of support and held uh, candlelight vigils as well. So that's the lovely part, right? Citizens. Beautiful citizens, wonderful people. Now you ready for the government response? Now let's get to, <laughs> now let's get to the people that the citizens vote for. Exactly. We're going to get to that later. So, because this was such a large-scale disaster, obviously the national government was impressed upon How did to this happen? Yeah, you, you have to respond to mm-hmm. this. So, um and the response was going to become a matter of some con- controversy as it were. So on June 15th, one day after the fire, both Prime Minister Theresa May and Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn visited the site of the fire. Uh, Their visits were strongly contrasted in the press. So Corbyn met with and even hugged and consoled survivors, while May spoke only to rescue workers and refused to meet with survivors and even blocked media access to her discussion with rescue workers and here's a couple Mm -hmm. pictures to contrast that so you can see how this is even like a covertly not covertly but like it's not a photographer on the ground taking a picture and they're kind of forming a ring around her a little bit uh, hmm. and there's jeremy corbin hugging somebody consoling them not trying to say that the conservatives are jerks and the more liberal people are better but One can draw their own conclusion on that. At the very least, that was a horrible misstep of Theresa May politically, right? Like, even if it wasn't intended to be any sort of coldness, it was a, it was just a bad perception. Came across that way. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Whether she meant it to do that or not, we, right. don't, we don't know. Right. I would, I would hope not, but yeah, I don't know. So the next day, June sixteenth, May visited injured survivors at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, and then also visited survivors at the St. Clement's Church, which had been set up as a temporary relief center. She blamed quote security concerns for her not being able to meet with victims previously and saying that that's why she only met with rescue workers. That's not exactly illegitimate. It's not. It's not, but, but here's what made that all sound a little BS-y. Is, oh, I, yeah. Is the fact, well, Corbyn was there and hugging people. Not that he's the prime minister, but he is a political leader, a prominent political leader. And then what also made things seem a little, hmm was the fact that the same day as she was not meeting with survivors, Queen Elizabeth and Prince William, also, again, hugely prominent members of British society... <laughs> Probably require a much bigger security detail. Yes, or at least as much, were meeting with survivors and victims in addition to emergency personnel uh, and volunteers. Prince William even broke the typical formal handshake protocol of the royal family when he interacted with civilians because he hugged 78-year-old Fatima Jafari, whose 81-year-old husband, Ali Yawar Jafari, was listed as missing. And here's that picture. Hmm. So that's Prince Charles. You can see he's hugging and consoling her and talking to somebody else with a very concerned look on his face. I didn't realize how tall he was. Either yes, that or, I mean, either that short, or these ladies are I, short. I, I, one believe, or the other. I believe he is not a short man. Yeah. I think he is relatively tall. Okay. Yeah. He also looks a fair bit like his mom. Oh, Actually, both ex- of his parents. looks but, exactly yeah. like his mom. Yeah. And uh, um, unfortunately, this lady's husband, uh, Ali Yawar Jafari, was eventually identified as one, as the, uh, one of the dead. So he was mm-hmm. not just missing. He was dead. And this, this photo and this whole the whole breaking of protocol and hugging um, a, a commoner, whatever you want to say, was compared highly, especially in the press, with Princess Diana, his mom, who we mentioned in the AIDS and HIV episodes, or HIV and AIDS episodes, that she was instrumental in humanizing uh, mm-hmm. people with HIV and AIDS when she showed physical touching and affection to people. So obviously his empathy was compared to hers, which mm-hmm. I, I, I he mean, gets it from his mother, they're I guess. politicians too, but I also think that I, I look relatively favorably on the new generation of Royals. I like William and Kate and I very much like Harry and Megs. I think that they're all good people. Did you say Megs? I did say Megs. <laughs> She's, I, I, I like them a lot. I think they're actually good people. I think they're a new generation of royals who aren't going to be jerks and cheat on each other and do a bunch of very unsavory things. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'll be uh, proven wrong. So during her visit to St. Clement's Church, this is on the 16th of June, Theresa May announced survivors would be rehomed as close as possible to the neighborhood within the coming weeks and that the government would be setting up a five million pound fund for the victims. Now, as she left, civilians outside heckled her mercilessly. I've seen that, too. I've seen footage of that. They booed. Yes. And they shouted words like coward and 
bloody scum mm-hmm. uh, while police held them back. And if security concerns weren't legitimate before, obviously here they Now were. they are. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen that footage. Um, it's pretty brutal. I grew up playing sports. I've been booed plenty of times, mm-hmm. especially playing like rival high schools and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I've never it booed never... in a sports arena, by the way. You've never what? Booed. I don't think oh, it's polite. Okay. Well, it's part of the game, whatever. But when I would hear it, it would just kind of piss me off. Yeah. There's something about the way British people boo <laughs> that makes, like, I felt ashamed watching the clip and I didn't even do anything. Oh. It's, 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 just, it's just the way. Maybe. It's like a, it's like coming from their gut in like some sort of way and like they really mean it. Well, you know what part of it could be is, you know, we were talking about American perception or at least our American perception of like the stoic British that when they do express strong emotion, it feels that much more. Yeah. Oh, no. Because their booze, are, are, it's like, boo. Like, it's just, it's like, yeah, it like, it's like unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm glad I never had to play a sport in the UK. Oh, can you imagine footballers? Those <laughs> yeah. booze must be scary. Yeah, right? Michael Portillo, a former conservative politician and current journalist and broadcaster. Now, he was a former conservative politician. May is also conservative. He publicly criticized May's response, saying, quote, she wanted an entirely controlled situation in which she didn't use her humanity. The prime minister would have been shouted at by the residents, but she should have been willing to take that, Mm -hmm. which I actually think is very perceptive. Like, part of being a leader is being willing to take your lumps when people don't like you. And when it's deserving. And when it's deserved. Exactly. Exactly. It would be fine. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Talk about somebody who doesn't want to take their lumps. Anyway. (laughs) We don't have anyone like that here no. in the U.S. So with the national government response response mixed at best, if you want to count like the royals and the pro column and yeah, May I'd, and the I'd, con column. I'd say mixed is probably the best yeah. way to put it. And the civilian community support clearly overwhelming and great and deserving of high praise. Those responding quickly called into question the response from the local government. Namely... The borough of Kensington and Kelsey Council. Who, do you, you remember mean, you who mean, they are? I mean Kensington and Chelsea. What did I say? You said Kensington and Kelsey. Did I say Kensington and Kelsey? I'm Pretty sorry. Sure it's okay. Kensington and Chelsea Council, or the Kensington and Kelsey Council. That's not it at all. I have, look how much beer is left you got, in that. Get a, a lot of beer is here, left in let that. Let me help you. No. <laughs> I mean, that's not what I was giving it to you for. Anyway, sorry, Kensington and Chelsea. Do you remember the yes, Kensington and Chelsea Council? Yes. And the, some of the choices they made? Yes. Like the 300,000 pounds saved on the and cladding were, that would later kill 72 people? And they were, they had how much in reserves? Over 200 million yeah. pounds. So you, it's really necessary to save that 300,000. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. We'll get back to them too. So... Especially noted was the lack of any coordinated response. So all the help that seemed to be offered seemed to be like piecemeal due to the fact that it was literally just people coming out of their houses, going down to the site and trying to help. They they were doing the absolute right thing, but there was nobody central coordinating it. It ended up being just like 
charities trying to respond, right, you know, after the fact, there was no centralized coordination. Who should have been coordinating it? The council, right? The local council, the local government. That would absolutely make sense. But one volunteer noted, quote, if you look around, there's no one here with a council vest on. Everyone is just coming and pitching in, end quote. So people were just showing up and doing the best they could. Again, like I, I think in the first episode or the second episode, it reminded me of New Orleans because mm. um, everybody in the nation... Everybody locally could physically actually see the fire happening. And everybody in the country was obviously watching it on TV. Right. Um, And that's how New Orleans was. But also in the the response is almost Mm. the same. The federal government was in New Orleans for like three or four days. Yeah. News crews were there mm-hmm. way before anybody mm-hmm. else was. Civilians were, were doing helping it people each other. Yes. They before had, FEMA ever arrived. Because they yeah. had no other choice. Uh-huh. So, yeah. I mean, again, yeah. another, another parallel to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in the end, it appeared the council from neighboring nearby neighborhood Ealing, who sent 200 people to the site to help, actually provided more on-the-ground support for the neighborhood than the Kensington and Chelsea Council itself. So basically, a, a nearby council was like, hey, we need to help. Let's send a couple hundred people. Those people arrived, and they're like, there is a vacuum of help. There's nobody helping these people. So they had to step up and like try to coordinate something. They drafted a detailed emergency SOP document, a standard procedures, operating procedures document within hours. Like they were like, okay, we need to do this. We need to set up. It wasn't just them, but they were one of the more instrumental um, bodies responding. And they, the the Ealing uh, Council, also directly observed Kensington and Chelsea officials responding particularly poorly. So one Ealing responder overheard an exchange between a KNC council official and a displaced resident. Now, this resident was literally wearing the clothing that he had been wearing when he escaped from the tower. So like a singed, charred T-shirt. Like it was really clear that he had escaped a fire. And this was a couple days later and he was still wearing the same clothes. And he was trying to enter a relief center, right, to get help that all these people were coming together to try to provide to people like him, right? Well, the official from Kensington and Chelsea stopped him from entering the relief center and said, quote, what proof do you have that you're a resident? <laughs> oh, my God. And the, this guy was super smart. He responded, quote, isn't a charred T-shirt enough evidence? <laughs> End quote. So eventually, aid workers and volunteers were told, like, if they arrived or were like, hey, who do we see about coordinating this? They were told, just just go to the the Ealing people. They know what's going on. Like, the Kensington and Chelsea people were deemed so useless that they, they just weren't even considered. Um, and it wasn't until June 18th that... That, that probably became the slogan for their board. <laughs> useless? No, so, so useless. So they don't useless. even need to be considered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So it wasn't until June 18th that the responsibility was formally taken away from the council. Basically, they were like, you can't do this. You clearly aren't responding. And specifically given to other local councils, the London Fire Brigade, police and the Red Cross. So it took multiple other organizations. Now, I'm not saying that the Kensington and Chelsea Council wasn't going to need support. They clearly would have. Any local government would. 
but they were basically a non-entity in this whole thing, and that's just shameful. And it didn't take people long to get extremely resentful and angry, and justifiably so, at the Kensington and Chelsea Council, as well as at the national government, right? That's why they were jeering Theresa May. The cladding was identified as the likely culprit of the scope of the fire very quickly. We're Mm -hmm. talking like the same day, basically. Yeah, because in some of the videos that I watched in the aftermath of this, and also during when this was happening... Pretty much a common statement from anybody that was filming on their phone or whatever. Mm-hmm. They all basically said the same. They're like, I can't believe how quickly that spread. Yep. They all said it. Mm-hmm. And and later, um, people from the fire department said the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. She, how did it spread so fast? I wonder. Yep. Well, here's another thing. Do you remember who was calling out the Kensington and Chelsea Council for years leading up to the fire? I don't remember. The Grenfell Action Group. That's right. Okay. Who had the blog. Mm-hmm. And it did not take long at all for journalists and other people to find that blog. The lady who ran it said that it went from like an average of 200 views a day to thousands upon thousand. thousands. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it was all laid out exactly what this council had done. So... Uh, So multiple protests took place on Friday, June 16th, including one outside the Kensington and Chelsea Town Hall. Now, it wasn't just the Town Hall. It was all over London. And some of these signs are just brilliant. This is hashtag Grenfell blood on their hands. Mm -hmm. Housing is a right. Capitalism, enemy of the people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Defy Defy Tory Tory rule. rule. Yep. To my understanding, the Tories are the conservatives in the UK. That's my understanding, too. I think so. Um, but I, d- I think so. Yes. But I can barely keep track of American politics. Oh, wait till we get to Brexit later. That's going to be fun because I, it's really hard to make sense of Brexit. But anyway, so those present at the town hall chanted, we want answers, we want justice. And they held up like posters with slogans, missing posters of those still missing. And emotion reached a fever pitch when some of the protesters were like, where is the council? Why aren't they talking to us? So they stormed town hall. And they're like, well, we'll come and see you. I I saw that footage, too. Yeah. I mean, it was actually not violent at all. Like, everybody... Emotions were running high, but it didn't seem like anyone was like, see, if this happened in America, people would have been shot. And there would have been tear gas, but that didn't happen. That's the difference. Our cops have guns. And they don't mind using them. And actually, they can't wait to use them. Especially against any brown or black people. Mm -hmm. They're very good at that. Even if you're 10. Yeah. Oh, there's no age limit. No. So uh, instead of actually doing anything, the council gave a written response (laughs) from the head of communication. (laughs) I mean, could you, I mean, really, could you have, like, if you were going to make a a guide of missteps, like, they followed every single one. They might have created the guide of missteps. Well, it was cowardice. It was just sheer cowardice and a lack of responsibility. About a year later, it would be revealed that at the time of this all going down, the Kensington and Chelsea Council was actually very active behind the scenes, emailing and strategizing with one another. And this should literally be no surprise to anyone that they were much more concerned about their reputation 
and the potential fallout of the disaster than they were about any of their residents and the fallout of the tragedy. Yeah, I mean, they don't care. So the emails, oh, keep listening. Emails were later released under freedom of information laws that would reveal the depths of their, and I wrote this and I believe this, their sociopathic level of selfishness and self-preservation. Like this is, is, these are no public servants whatsoever. Something like this happening and them not taking account for it, that's called, uh, for these people, it's called like, that's Wednesday. Yeah, right? It's like, okay, yeah. So the leader of the council, Nicholas Paget Brown, had complained about how the fire had become a um, warning for a curse word, but I am quoting directly. So this guy said, quote, that the fire had become a, quote, complete media shitstorm, end quote, and that the press was portraying them negatively. How dare they Mm. do that? There was even one email titled, literally, this is the subject of the email. Who's in charge? Like, that's obviously troubling. Yes, because they didn't know what to do. They should have had a response plan in Uh. place. It's part of local government's responsibility. Other emails showed a conspiracy to develop damage control, sound bites they could feed the media, and even a strategy to avoid the press altogether. KG Good behavior, luck with that last one. Yeah, KG behavior in the immediate aftermath was also pretty apparent. Paget Brown, for example, when asked why they hadn't installed sprinklers during the recent renovation. We don't have the money for that. We're only worth a no, couple no, hundred no, no, million no. dollars. No, even better. He heavily insinuated that it was the residents who didn't want them. Yeah, sure. He yeah. said, quote, there was not a collective view that all the flats should be fitted with sprinklers because that would have delayed and made the refurbishment of the block more disruptive, end quote. Of course, what he didn't mention was that the sprinklers would have cost an additional 200,000 pounds. And considering they were willing to kill 72 people for 300,000 pounds, it's not, it, it's literally no surprise that they didn't want to spend another 200,000. So. Okay, for the sociopaths you had just mentioned. Uh-huh. Uh huh. To you and me, $500,000, because that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The sprinklers were two. The 300,000 yes. was. For, to have. Um, Zinc cladding instead oh, okay, of the, yes, the ACP. Cladding. Mm-hmm. So now we're at five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars is what it would have cost to not make this happen. Mm-hmm. Really, three hundred thousand. But in case any fire, tack on the extra sure. two. Now to these people, that's it's literally nothing. It's five cents. This to is them. one of the it's, richest boroughs yes. in all of London. To them, like you know how happy you get when you're doing laundry and you find like a random five dollar <laughs> bill and you're, and you're like, wow, this is great. Like uh-huh. that's what five hundred thousand dollars is to these people. Ridiculous. But where they miscalculate is, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess it costs more than $500,000 to replace an entire building. Oh, we're going to go into the true financial cost of this later. Yeah, we will get to that. Talk about short-sighted. <laughs> so on June 18th, further aid was announced to individual displaced households in the amount of 5,500 pounds. So each household was going to get doled out that amount for relocation. While addressing the House of Commons, Theresa May admitted that there had been a, quote, failure of the state, local and national, to help people when they needed it most, end quote. Well, she, they, they didn't tell those people they just need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, that would be in America. 
Oh, at least they my have. Bad. They at least they have socialized they, medicine. They, there. they don't tell people that in the UK. I'm guessing they do. I'm guessing they do, but not as bad as we do here. She also personally apologized for that failure, which is an apology that I'm sure rang pretty hollow to the victims and those affected by the disaster. I'm just hoping that she meant it. Yeah. I mean, really. And maybe she did. Maybe, maybe she, she did. did. Who knows? By November. For her t- sake, I'm hoping that. Yeah. Not for the people's sake. By November 2017, an additional 28 million pounds was allocated to victims. So now, we're ready to get into the inquiry. <laughs> I had to uncross my legs. That's okay. Why. They were falling asleep. All right. So now we're going to talk about the formal Grenfell Tower Fire inquiry. And I just have to preface this by li- by saying that there's literally no way we could ever come close to covering the content, even just contained within the inquiry. If you do want to read more about it, there is so much information on the inquiry web- website at grenfelltowerinquiry.org.uk. And this includes some of my source for, for a lot of this information, like um, Bahalu Kabede's testimony. That described a lot of the fire and everything. I used that. So there's, there's, it's a massive amount of information. So on June 15th, the day after the fire, Theresa May announced that there would be a public inquiry into the fire at Grenfell Tower. Of course, right? There could not be. On June 28th, 2017, Sir Martin Moore Bick was appointed by May as the chair of the inquiry, which would formally begin on August 15th, 2017. I have a picture of Sir Martin Morbick. So many hyphenated names in the UK. That is Sir Martin Morbick. Yep. Does he look like one? He does. <laughs> he looks like a guy whose, name's, whose name is Sir Martin Morbick. He could also be another Nigel Whitbread. No, Nigel Whitbread no? stood out Okay. Uh, very well. Okay. So, uh, Morbick, and it's M-O-O-R-E hyphen B-I-C-K, just because it sounds like morbid when I say Anyway, Morbick was 70 years old and a recently retired, like, six months earlier, uh, vice president of the Civil Division of the Court of Appeal. And he had a legal career that began in 1969, so it's 50 years on at this point, and that included 20 years as a judge. So despite his legal experience, or actually because of it, many people raise serious concerns about his appointment. So very quick and hopefully obvious aside, when people are in need of public housing, where they are located is obviously very important, right? If someone needs to be rehoused, it's generally very important that they be housed where near where they have been living in the recent past so they can remain close to their support system right friends family work their kids schools i mean you don't want to be tearing kids in and out of schools right that can just cause more social problems so well back in 2014 sir morbick presided over a case where a single mother of five named tatina nzola meso needed housing help so her public benefits that she was receiving had hit the benefit cap, so the maximum amount that she could be receiving in um, assistance from the government. Now, incidentally, um, the that cap was actually lowered about a month before the Grenfell Tower. So they were starting to cap benefits lower and lower. 
Now, this benefit cap meant that Tatina could no longer afford the rent of her current London flat, and so she needed to be rehoused. She had to find more affordable housing. She just couldn't afford it. Her local council did offer her new housing 50 miles away from her current location. (laughs) She had five kids who are probably in school. Like, so, okay, yeah, sure. And who knows where, if she she worked or where she worked or her family, her friends, whatever. They're like, here, you can move 50 miles away. I mean, like, that's a huge upheaval for anybody. So, so she refused. She was like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's just taking me out of my current, you know, support system. And then the council refused to offer her anything else. They were like, okay, well, take it or leave it, but mm-hmm. we're not going to help you if you refuse it. So this ended up in court, going through the court system, and ended up in Sir Morbick's court, where he ruled that the council was within their right not to rehome Tatina any closer to her original location. Now, it didn't take too long oh, for people. Oh, the compassion. Yeah. Um... I did see a picture of Tatina and Zola Meso. Do you want to take any guesses as to how similar or dissimilar from Sir Martin Morbick she looked? I'm going to guess she's non-white. That would be correct. She does appear to be a woman of color. So it didn't take long for people to read between the lines and determine that Sir Martin Morbick's decision gave some leeway for local councils to have the power to decide who should live where based on potentially discriminating criteria such as ethnicity, race, social status, country of origin. Then, in 2014 as well, same year, Morbick presided over a case where a man born in China and living with his two very young British-born children in the UK was deported after committing a robbery. The man fought his deportation so that he could remain to care for his children. The idea is that the government isn't generally in the business of tearing apart families, right? So he was saying, I need to stay with my kids. Morbick disagreed and deported him. Now, well... I'm, I'm actually going to side with Morbick well, on that Well, but one. here's the thing. There's a lot of nuance to this case. I didn't go super far into it, but... So a couple things. This was a robbery where he actually tied up a couple people, like restrained people to to rob, but he did not have a history of criminal behavior. There was also evidence and his insistence that he had been driven through financial desperation and need to rob. Now, however you want to say that, that's fine. Yeah, I'm, still I'm just saying. Excuse it. Regardless whether that was an excuse or not, due to his recent track record of treating ethnic minorities in a way that seemed discriminatory, when Morbick was reported to the Grenfell inquiry, which remember Grenfell was a fire at a council flat where, where victims uh, were, uh, a lot of the victims were displaced people of multiple ethnicities, national origin and race there were a lot of ethnic and racial and national minorities a lot of refugees staying in the public housing at grenfell many protested that this judge who seemed content to contribute to what many and this is highly contested i will grant you but it has been called social cleansing that he was deliberately allowing um people of quote, undesirable ethnicities to be displaced 
through his rulings, they were like, well, he shouldn't be the one to head the inquiry, right? Regardless of the pushback, Morbeck remained as chair of the inquiry. Now, what I would say, as if I were Theresa May trying to appoint somebody, I would try to appoint somebody who is... Way less controversial. Yes, yes. Regardless of whether this was all justified. Whether he was fit for the job or not. Yes. Just for the optics alone, you'd be like, well, we got to get somebody either new or even much more even handed. it would have been smarter. Yeah, so, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like the, the optics were just bad all around. Just terrible. So the inquiry was rolled out in phases or is being rolled out in phases because this is all still ongoing, which I'll get to in a second. So hearings for the first phase took place between May 21st, 2018 and December 12th, 2018. Morbick is currently preparing his phase one report, which is set to be released at a very controversial time. So first, Morbick said he was going to release his report this spring of 2019. Obviously, that didn't that's, happen. That's come and gone. And it was pushed to October 30th, 2019. Now, as we're recording today, it is October 26th, 2019. This will be released on October 28th. <laughs> this is like two days later that this is, again, in our weird serendipitous timing, this is the, the thing. But here's why this is controversial. So our friends in the UK are currently undergoing a bit of political upheaval known as Brexit, right? Which is the United Kingdom's withdrawal from the European Union. So very quick background from somebody who understands very little of this. I don't, I understand hardly Uh, any at all. In June 2016, a very narrow majority of citizens, as in like just shy of 52%, so just Mm -hmm. barely Yeah, I remember it was very close. Voted in favor of Brexit. In the leaving of the European Union in a referendum called for by then Prime Minister David Cameron, who was actually himself against it, but was like, fine, let's just go ahead and take a vote, from what I understand. And that was amidst a lot of controversy about whether people really understood what they were voting for, whether it was a pro- an appropriate time to vote. Anyway, there was some stuff going down. And I'll let our U- UK friends elaborate in our discussion group, so... The UK government has been currently unable to negotiate the conditions of Brexit to present. It's not like people voted for it and then all of a sudden this was cut. The implications are so far reaching and affect so much that this whole thing has to be negotiated. Which is why it's hard to understand as well. Exactly, yeah. So as of the time of this recording and releasing the episode, the current date for the, quote, official exiting of the UK from the EU is Thursday, October 31st, 2019. Now, apparently it's still very unsure if anything will actually happen on that date other than like another delay and a new deadline, moving the goalposts yet again. Um, But regardless, this date has is a highly dramatic date right like this could happen there's a lot riding on it. exactly in in either direction and even current prime minister boris johnson or um donald trump doppelganger (laughs) for the uk the uk's donald trump yes said he would rather quote be dead in a ditch end quote then extend the deadline And I'm I'm gonna be willing to bet there are many people that would Who are want fine to make with that him happen. Being dead in a ditch, I think probably for any reason, much yeah. less than for this. <laughs> so regardless, 
Brexit and the October 31st deadline, they're looming very large in the public consciousness in the UK and all of Europe right now. And it's and it's more in the news here now because this deadline is coming. Yes, but now think about this. For that reason, many people are very unhappy with the fact that the inquiry report is coming out one day before this. The I, the implications being that people are that this was deliberate that they're trying oh, yes. to bury the report yeah. in another bigger story. Absolutely. I'm surprised they actually put it a day ahead with how Right. I mean obviously I don't live in the UK, but let's put it this way. In the United States, our current government as it stands, our version of the Conservative Party, which would be the Republicans, at this point are so brazen yeah. That they will do it like it doesn't matter. Uh-uh. I mean, it really. And there's constant look over here yes. in the press. They will literally. While something else worse is going on. Steal something right in front of your face, right in front of television cameras for everybody to see and, and say, say. nothing happened. And say, no, that didn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. And some people sadly will believe that. Yeah. But. So I'm a little bit surprised they're putting it a day ahead. But obviously it's like, okay, it's going to have its day the next day. It's one day. The and next then day everything. we're going to be talking about. Something completely different. We'll give you one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's awful. It's really awful. And yeah, it's absolutely deliberate. Yeah, sure, sure seems like it. You can never prove it. You can never prove motivation, really. But no. Let's face it. Now, while we don't currently, right now, this minute, probably by the time a lot of people listen to this, this will already be out. But and we'll follow up on it. But while we don't have the findings of the inquiry report right now, we do know. The basics, because the inquiry testimony and evidence is largely made public, right, on that um, website. Some of the highlights of this evidence, in addition to the whole cladding thing, which is pretty much ironclad, ha ha, as it were. I was just, uh, I don't know, it was a bad joke. But anyway. We have to edit that one out. It's not, it's not even worth it one way or the other. I know. Just, there's nothing funny about it. Anyway. Some of the highlights of this evidence include that multiple firefighters at the scene um, testified that they felt overwhelmed and inadequately trained Mm -hmm. to respond to the Grenfell fire. I saw Mm -hmm. some videos on that as well. That they didn't have the proper equipment to effectively fight it, which kind of makes sense considering what they thought they were getting into versus what they and what they wound up getting into right yeah sure most agreed that the fire shouldn't have spread as quickly as it did and that it did seem that the cladding was the biggest culprit of the scope of the fire further they did not receive the firefighters did not receive adequate information about the renovation changes and they were working off old plans Mm. to the building so they didn't even have updated information basically everything we built up to in the previous episodes that's that's the cause. Anyway. The thing is, and the thing is also I know from um, our firefighter friends and mm-hmm. guest host for one podcast, my buddy James, mm-hmm. um, in the, it's probably not this way anymore because he says he roams around from district to dis- district now. Okay. But when I was there visiting him. Um, a couple years ago. Yeah. Out in Tucson. Actually, like five years ago. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. But he was talking about... Um, He's like, yeah, he's like, we know the ins and outs of every building in our district. Yes, that would be the the best thing, right? Well, and maybe they did know the ins and outs of this tower prior to the renovation. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I would think if something major is happening like it did, 
Well, I mean, I think one of the first things it would need to pass like a fire safety test. Right, I'm, right. Obviously, that didn't happen either. I, I don't know. Because if they're working off of old plans. Yeah, where, that... where are the new plans? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't know. So, of course, we know some of the other background, the unnecessary penny-pinching of the council and the TMO, the stay-put policy, the lack of smoke alarms, and so forth. And hopefully, despite the qualms of those abhorring, abhorring? <laughs> opposing, sorry, more big. I think I put opposing and more together, abhorring. Or abhorrent more big. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, opposing his appointment, the first inquiry report hopefully will follow the evidence and not spin or conjecture. I mean, the the upside is they're making the testimony public. So if they draw sure. some random conclusion, it'll be like the ruination of Morbick's career as well as whoever's helping him in this, right? Hopefully. The second phase of this inquiry, remember this is just the first phase. The second phase is estimated to begin in early next year, early 2020. Now, this second phase will expand the presiding single-judge format to a three-member panel. That will include more BIC, but then we'll also have two other people presiding, two other justices, after Theresa May bent to pressures regarding his appointment. So she's like, look, first phase, we're moving forward with just him. After that, we'll add a couple other people. So there's sort of a semi-win um, there. So regardless of the cause of who did what, right or wrong, the fact remains that a few hundred people are now living with the direct effects of having, effects, I don't know why I said it that way, of having had to escape their homes in the middle of the night and losing all their household belongings, not to mention that many of them lost lost loved ones. You also mentioned um, that you saw something that a lot of the people knew each other in the building. So even if yeah. you just, even if it's just losing a, a casual acquaintance, there's something very unsettling about that. Yeah, if something happened to one of our neighbors, it'd be like, God, yeah. like we don't know them all that like, well personally super personally but it's still but we know horrible. who they are yeah it's not an anonymous name no. it's, it's somebody you actually know yeah so this being the case the main concerns for the survivors are for their mental health and it's it's not just the survivors it's many people affected because there were people who were evacuated from other buildings people who just saw what happened, whether it was in person or on TV. I mean, this was a traumatizing event. A study of 2,200 people who were either direct victims of the fire or who lost loved ones in in it uh, was carried out and they were all screened for PTSD. And it was found found that approximately 67% of them had PTSD symptoms that required treatment. So- I'm surprised that's all it was. Well, but here's the thing. The NHS, the National Health Service, estimates that the average need for PTSD treatment after any trauma is about one in three. Okay. So a third. mm -hmm. This is double that. This is double that. So that's an alarming number. It's an especially I'm I'm surprised that it's only 
a third of people who end up with PTSD. But they also did delineate that it's not just PTSD that's a concern. Some people have, um, like, they'll turn to drugs or alcohol, and that's considered a separate issue, even though it obviously stems from... It's a an experience, of basically. PTSD for basically, the most part. then then they also separately diagnosed anxiety and depression. So they're like different qualifiers. There's ultimately, I think, there's very few people who ever make it out of a traumatic event like fine and dandy. The same. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think that's even Not human, no. other than maybe sociopaths or something like that. So. Right. <laughs> um, among those who lived near the tower but weren't evacuated. So in other words, they weren't, quote, directly affected per se. The PTSD rate was still really alarming, estimated to be between 28 and 48%. I think it was actually 26 and 48%, but that's just people That's still higher than the it. average. Yeah. Further, due to the diversity of the Grenfell uh, residents and victims... Many are survivors of past trauma, including, for example, immigrants from countries like Syria, Libya, Somalia, where trauma is kind of the norm. What do all three of those countries have in common? We've dropped bombs on all three of them well, recently. Well, there's that too. That probably some of the reasons the, the first guy you mentioned who died, who was a Syrian refugee, mm-hmm. could very well be a refu- refugee because of us. That's possible. Oh, our, the U.S. is, like, one of the biggest murderers in history, if we really want to get dark about it. But anyway, let's move on. Let's not make this about us, as no. they say. So a lot of these people who had been victims of trauma in previous years, in especially due to, like, refugee status or, or other issues... They ended up re-traumatized by this, and that just opened up previous wounds. I I uh, looked through an about article. A feeling of uh, hopelessness. I looked through an article about a woman who's trying to reach out to uh, woman survivors of the fire who were from a lot of these countries, and she's like, they just sit and cry a lot of our meetings because it's just it's just reopened so much trauma from the past, you know. And imagining imagine thinking like, well you know what, I think this is a fresh start. I'm just going to suck it up, move on, try to forget everything. And then you have to go through something like this. And it's just like, you just must feel like life is so stacked against you. And you wouldn't be wrong <laughs> either. You know, it just, just it's so horrible. Uh, one witness of the fire, like she was nearby and, and watched it happen. She also went on to champion for the Grenfell victims. She was diagnosed with PTSD just like secondarily, right? Because this happened as something that she witnessed. Uh, she unfortunately did go on to kill herself. So mm. there has been suicide, at least at least one suicide associated with this. Others, many others have admitted to contemplating suicide, which is not a shock at all. And also a symptom of PTSD in some cases. Overall, there is a consensus that victims are not receiving the necessary mental health support they need from the NHS. It, it, in all fairness, it is an overwhelming amount, but they need to step up and do it. Like, just literally check in with everybody and make sure they're all getting anything they need. At present, NHS England has allocated an additional £50 million over the next five years to support those affected by the fire. Mahad Igal, a 32-year-old resident of Grenfell who escaped, expressed this about his trauma. Quote, Every night in my dreams, 
I die, end quote. It's just, it's just horrible. So in addition to the obvious mental health effects, those who were displaced by the fire also had to grapple with the issue of physically carrying on with their lives, which is made hard enough by PTSD. But even if you take that out of the equation, let's, let's say they move you 50 miles away. (laughs) Well, there's that, but we'll get into that. It's, it's even just like, you're like, I literally have the clothes on my back. Like that guy with the singed t-shirt, right? It's like, uh, this is all I have left in the world, basically. Now, while the community clearly came together to help meet the physical needs of the survivors, a time does come where people have to go back to work. They have to put their kids back in school. They have to carry on with their lives, right? And these things are incredibly difficult to do when you don't have a permanent home. Just imagine, like, because a lot of people were put in hotels. Imagine just the disruption to your entire life. If you have to, you're not on vacation. No. (laughs) You are having to go into work, you're having to send your kids to school, and you're in a hotel room or some random place or even if you're quote lucky enough to have relatives that are letting you stay with them i mean it's just so hugely disruptive to your life now in the wake of the fire and amidst an obvious pr nightmare theresa may stated that they hope to have all those displaced by grenfell rehomed within three weeks permanently rehomed in three weeks that was a nice little pipe dream. I was well. I mean, it's a good goal. I mean, it's a nice I, goal, but it. I hope it happened, but obviously uh, it did not. No, the goalposts started moving, mm-hmm. like basically right away. So, an estimated two hundred three households had been displaced by the fire. Now, by households, that's obviously not people. That's units, right, of homes. But they were going to need. 300 homes, an estimated 300 homes to rehouse people because you're not, some of the living situations that people were in were temporary too. Like for example, Bahelu Kabede, whose home this started in, he had two roommates. Well, that, their arrangements didn't necessarily mean like, oh, well, no, we're going to all live together forever. No, they each needed a new home, right? Was the idea. So because some of the living situations were temporary, they would need a more permanent solution just even to their previous arrangement. So as of October 2017, so this is four months after the fire, only 11 households had been permanently rehomed out of 300, with most others in temp or 203, I guess, with most others in temporary accommodation, including hotels. The Kensington and Chelsea Council, who we, of course, know to be truthful and honest at all junctures announced that they would have 300 homes available to everyone who needed them by christmas that year now knowing the council's track record it should come as no shock that about 100 of the displaced households were still living in hotels at christmas time that's just the hotels that's not even temporary Uh, The new promise then became, uh, oh, well, within a year of the fire. (laughs) So let's move it six months down from now. Um, So uh, it just kept going on like that. So part of the problem was the methodology in finding new homes. Families were offered housing, just like Tatina, who more big was like, oh, no, yeah, we can rehouse you 50 miles away. They were being offered housing miles away from where they had previously lived. 
and worked and sent their kids to school. Almost two years after the fire, there were still a handful of survivors living in temporary accommodation. Now, within a couple weeks after the fire, many Grenfell residents began meeting at the behest of a local Irish priest, Father McTurnan, to organize and advocate for the victims and those surviving the disaster. And they called themselves Grenfell United, and they remain active to this day. Unfortunately, uh, Grenfell United also contributed to the downfall of the Grenfell Action Group, which is sad Mm. because the Grenfell Action Group was completely correct and were the people who raised the alarm in the years leading up to the fire, even though that they even though they were not listened to, at least they well documented the sins of the Kensington and Chelsea Council and the TMO, right? So as you may recall from our first episode on the fire, the GAG was founded by Francis O'Connor, who lived in a very nearby to Grenfell, uh, Verity Close, and Grenfell resident Ed Daffern. Now, Ed fortunately did survive the fire. He escaped. Obviously, he lost his entire home and all his belongings, too, right? So in the aftermath of the fire, he told Francis, look, I need to take a step back from contributing to this blog because I just need to recover and take care of myself, which made sense. Completely understandable, right? Now, the, the rest of this is according to Francis, for the record. According to Francis, after that, he just refused to respond to her for several months. And apparently at one point when she did get him on the phone, she said that he had a temper tantrum. Now... Again, this is her account, whether it was PTSD related, who knows. But Francis found out that Ed was a founding member of Grenfell United. And Grenfell United had some access to Theresa May and other high-ranking government officials. So in other words, they had the ear of the government. Mm -hmm. And they were given what's called core participant status in the Grenfell inquiry, which means that they would have participatory access to the proceedings. They could ask questions. They would have input. Frances had applied for this status, too, but she had been denied. So things devolved pretty quickly. So Francis on the GAG blog accused Ed of longing for the spotlight and being, quote, a piece of work, end quote. So Mm. she claimed that she was the one who did most of the work on the blog even prior to the fire. And she wrote the last blog post entitled The Last Post on May 2nd, 2019, effectively ending the GAG. So I thought that was kind of sad, just... Uh, it's tough. It's mm-hmm. tough. Friendships are tough and communication is tough. And when you add tough circumstances, it just makes things difficult. Anyway, let's talk about the cladding. We're, I promise we are wrapping up soon. There's just so much. This was a seven pager. So let's talk about the cladding, the infamous cladding. We're going to start talking about the money, right? I told you we would talk about how much this cost in the long run. Obviously, we know what it cost in lives, but... And the untold cost of uh, people's mental health. But uh, the inquiry is still in progress, as I mentioned, but there has been testimony that, yeah, the cladding was an issue. So it's clear that the Kensington and Chelsea Council and TMO's decision to unnecessarily save £300,000 on cladding likely cost 72 lives. So even if you take the human cost out of it, the financial impact of the fire is estimated to be in easily in the hundreds of millions of pounds when you take everything into account. Um, not to mention, or there's one estimate that has it 
being closer to like 1 billion pounds. Now that's obviously everything, right? You have to rehome people, health services, mental health services, uh, dealing with the tower itself, which we'll get to in a minute. The inquiry alone, the inquiry itself, is expected to cost as much as 30 or 40 million pounds. Now there's also the matter of the fact that an estimated 60,000 people in the United Kingdom still live in homes with the same cladding that made this place go up, right? In other words, tens of thousands of people are still living in tinder boxes. Are at high risk. Yes, this could happen anytime any uh, moving forward, right? The cladding is being replaced, but it's very slow going. So initially, 400 million pounds was allocated to replacing this cladding in public housing blocks. And as of spring of this year, about a third of them had been refitted. But it's not just on public houses. There's some of this in private houses, too. And that's a lot slower going, even though it's still as much of a risk. So initially, the government took the stance that, well, residents, private residents, just need to bear the brunt of the cost of replacing this cladding themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Of course they do. And it wasn't until May of this year that they finally caved and allocated 200 million pounds to replace private building claddings. Though, again, still very slow going. And it's expected to take at least another five years to replace all of this, leaving thousands at risk for what one person called a Grenfell 2, meaning this could happen again Mm -hmm. to any number of people. Now, as we dug into the story backstory of public housing in the UK during the first part of this series, we also discussed the policy of so-called slum clearance, right? Well, the lackadaisical approach to safety at Grenfell and other council flats in London could be considered essentially another form of that, whether deliberate or just horrifically negligent. In other words, if this were a bunch of rich white people, do you think that the safety standards would have been so... Eh? Yeah, Or that we'd try to save the 300,000 on cladding? Further... Patterns of gentrification, so again, another nice word for trying to drive certain people from an area, right, were exhibited in Kensington and Chelsea and in larger areas as well. Now, this was very interesting. We got a message on Facebook from one of our listeners, and this person wishes to remain anonymous. But they worked literally in the shadow of Grenfell. Really? Like just down the street, right? And they reached out to us and told us their own personal experience. If we were investigative journalists, I'd totally be all over this. We are not. So I apologize. (laughs) I'm like, I have no capacity to be able to deal with this intelligently because this person has a lot of information. But they said that the local council deliberately drove the owner of the business that they worked for. So they worked for this business. They deliberately drove this business out of business Because the council didn't deem it to be a desirable business. Mm. And this apparently happened to several other businesses. And uh, the way that I could, from what I could gather, it was a, not a charity. The business was not a charity. It was a business, but it was a helpful community business, not a rich, ritzy business. So so it's hardly, 
It's hardly past the realm of possibility that such an irresponsible local government could be consider continuing to make terrible choices, let alone I would not put it outside the realm of possibility that they are making very deliberate sort of <sighs> reputation cleansing choices at this juncture either. Kensington and Chelsea is one of the wealthiest local authorities in the entire country, let alone London, and has a massive wealth gap to prove it. One of the worst wealth gaps in the country. To add insult to injury on the part of the council, remember that they had over 200 million uh, Mm -hmm. pounds in reserves that they hoarded when they skipped on the cladding? You want to know one of the things that they ended up doing with some of that money? I, I'm not you sure. Don't, I, I don't think I'm not you sure do, I but do. I'm tell but you anyway. let's, let's go for it. They paid out a hundred pound tax rebate for top bracket local taxpayers. And you know who top bracket local taxpayers are? I can only imagine those who make the most income. Mm-hmm. So in other words, and they gave these people a hundred pounds back, which basically is probably like pennies to them anyway. But yeah, that's what they use. Them. Well, that's good. So, yeah, another... Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was okay. just saying. Yeah. So here's one more fun fact about talk the... About, talk about sociopaths. Oh, yeah. Here's another fun fact about the Kensington and Chelsea Council. After the fire, some... Obviously, everyone was a former resident, right? Because this building was literally unlivable. Some of the residents' rent payments were still drawn from their bank accounts. Mm-hmm despite the fact that the building was literally unoccupied. Um, Side rants, Rachel rants. We had municipal elections here recently. We voted in them. If you have municipal elections, which basically everybody does, you should vote in them too, because it was literally a result of municipal elections, local elections, that these sociopaths... Were in charge. And that 72 people died. Mm -hmm. So, voting in your local elections can save lives. Well, also, I mean, I know people, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in America, roughly 50%, give or take, of mm-hmm. registered voters don't show up. Vote. Yeah. Well, well either yeah, way. but yeah, either way. So, essentially, half the people who are qualified to vote in our country just don't. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing to people who are on the fence or who aren't registered or whatever. The country's politics and stuff like that, that's one thing. Mm hmm. Local elections affect you pretty much right away. Yes. And they affect you every day. And they so affect local, your neighbors. Local elections are, to me, the most important yes. thing to be involved in. I agree with that. Because I agree with that. it is a direct effect on your life. In, Absolutely. In, in one way or another. And the wrong people can lead to this. I mean, that's how, that's how, it's literally a matter of life and death, if you mm-hmm. look at it this way. That's how influential this is. And most of those people are so bankrolled anyway that, mm-hmm. they're, that they're going to win anyway. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't show up. No, because you have a lot more influence locally than you mm-hmm. ever will nationally, all of us. And if you're someone who feels passionately enough, run. You know the number of people who run unopposed in these little seats? Oh, they need all the time. they need opposition. Yeah. Even if all you're doing is making them fight for their job, that's important. And if if there's not somebody who's good enough at this, you can do it and you should. This is our civic duty to watch out for each other, and that's how we should do it. So, I'm going to move on. 
<laughs> now, this also speaks to a larger culture of uh, deregulation and cutting corners during mm-hmm. conservative administration. Has that been happening? Now, I'm, I, was, I literally wrote, not to get political on everyone, but of course I am. This tragedy was political. This was political. This was politics. This is what happens when people think that people will do what's best for others by their own nature and don't need regulation, don't need watching after, especially when it concerns money. I don't think it's overstating it. You can disagree with me and that's fine, but I don't think it's overstating that capitalism literally kills. There are winners and losers in capitalism and 72 people lost. Sometimes losers die. Literally. 72 people lost in this case. And that's just the deaths, not to mention the thousands who have lost portions of their lives because of this. Um, so I'm going to move on to my last paragraph. So as for Grenfell Tower itself, it still haunts the West London skyline. Is uh, it still there? It's still there. My uh, my bandmate Jeez, Rich I was in London recently and he's like, yep, I saw it. It is covered in a protective wrapping, which is a little ironic because that's what caused the fire. But it's not it's not the cladding. It's a it's a plastic. Well, anyway, here here's a picture of it. And that's what it looks like now. What they're doing inside is all the forensic work. Right sure. Now. Well, um, I, OK, well, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. I, it, they're not trying to not make it look scary. Right. Just that they're 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 actually doing work in there, too. OK. Now, once all the investigation is complete, it will be carefully dismantled floor by floor to protect nearby buildings. They can't just blow this up. They, they can't just no. demolish it. They have to do it very carefully. Now, this is estimated to be completed, the complete dismantling, in 2022. After that, the plan is to let the local community decide on a fitting memorial at the site. Uh, so in the meantime, the survivors and locals are reminded daily by the wrapped, singed building of the time their government cared so little for them and their loved ones that they were literally willing to put a price tag on their lives. And that, my friends, ends our direct coverage of the ongoing Grenfell Tower fire and the absolute failure of local government to protect its citizens. Yay. Wow. Well, that was... Wow. I, I don't know what to say because it's just, it's. I know. It's, it's sadly, it's as, it's as expected. It's like, yeah, this is it's just. It's not this, unexpected. This, this, this it's is enraging, how... but that's yeah. what politics yeah, like, is, right? This is just how it works. But, uh, if I can do a yeah. side rant myself, sure. I thought of this, um, from watching this video, I also thought of this because I literally just got done watching Joker mm-hmm. about two hours ago, mm-hmm. and I didn't even think about that about this tragedy watching that film. But absolutely, mm-hmm. it's it's the if people have seen it, they'll know what I'm talking about. If you have not seen it, spoiler alert. No, I'm not going to do anything like that. Oh, okay. It's it's an excellent film. Okay, and it fits into our current capitalist system worldwide. Mm-hmm. But uh. This is a comedian that we went to see on the first night of our honeymoon because it just happened to work out that Jimmy, he was, he Jimmy was there. But this is when I f- I'm I've soured on him a little bit lately. He's really? gotten he's gotten a little 
too out there for me. I didn't always agree with everything that he mm-hmm. said, but even like his tone now, I'm kind of like, I don't know. But anyway, um, he has a show on YouTube called The Jimmy Dore Show. It's a political show. It's mm-hmm. political comedy. Yes, it is comedy. Sometimes it's really funny. Sometimes it's really serious. Sometimes it doesn't make much sense. Mm-hmm. So it could be. But this is a video that he did on the Grenfell Tower fire. Oh, okay. Um, probably one of the best videos he's ever done. Mm. So look up Jimmy Dore Grenfell Tower, and this is... Well, try to remember to put a link up, too. Yes, this is the end of the rant from the video that he does. And in this, he's speaking of the capitalist system, not only in America, but in the UK. In every In every first world country, pretty much. So this is what he's speaking of. Okay. About the Grenfell Tower fire. Okay. He ends the video saying, They'll poison your water... And they'll beat your head in to do it. They'll steal your house right out from under you in order to enrich some oligarchs on Wall Street. And they'll beat your head in to do it. Just like they've cracked the heads open of peaceful protesters around the country. They'll beat your head in if you don't go to war. They'll beat your head in if you don't go to school. Or if you stand up for yourself. They'll beat your head in if you try to unionize. They'll beat your head in if you protest. This neoliberal nightmare... (laughs) This neoliberal nightmare brought to America and the world by Democrats and Republicans alike. They will beat your head in. Yeah. That's sad. That's hard. And sadly, it's true. It's, it's definitely how it feels. I, I will say I am heartened by the fact that at least here... It feels like there are some people stepping up to be legitimate leaders who really legitimately seem to care and really legitimately seem to be trying. And, I mean, we can just hope and vote that they will come through. Yes. (sighs) This This is such a rough topic because it's just so endemic of everything isn't it it is it's just so endemic of everything it's emblematic it's like, it's, uh, it's like this is what it's come to and yeah f- and for what reason for, for money for no reason other than money That's and money it. is not a reason money no. is nothing money is nothing i'm not a believer in heaven or hell or, or any of those things but if you are and if it exists and you go there do you get to take that money with you no. I, I'm, I, wa- I wonder <laughs> the fa- the famous saying is you can't take it with you yeah yeah so, yeah it's uh, uh and it's it's hard because we just how many times has this theme played out in our pretty well in for, life pretty much for every fire we've done yeah. something similar to this has played out yeah and for many other things mm-hmm. we um bridge collapses this plays out we had a i'm not even sure i told you this we had a listener reach out um saying that she listened to I believe her name was Mackenzie, that she listened to our Grenfell Tower episodes, and she was like, she was very complimentary. She was very sweet. Um, she herself was a survivor of a household fire when she was mm. 10. She was a child. I mean, and there are obviously child survivors of Grenfell as well. Um, and she included a picture of her and her dog because her dog died in the fire after warning the family Mm. about it was very sad um and you know she has to deal with even to to this day the after effects of that ptsd trauma does not go away 
And it won't for these survivors, unfortunately. It won't for the people who are secondarily traumatized. And that's what makes the idea that it's for money. Money is not worth a part of a human's brain. Money is not worth any part of a human's emotions. It's just so sick. And it's the only thing that I can think is it's just that the people who think it is worth it, they're just sick, sick people too. Yeah. They're just incredibly sick people too. Just in a different way. They're just sick in a depraved way. And the most, for the most part, probably don't even realize it. Yeah. No. Yeah, because if you get to that point, then you've yeah. been brought up that way. Yeah. But anyway. Oh, that's, you know, there's no good way to end this. It, and it's not done. It's not over. It's still going on and it's going to for generations. This is going to be a tragedy of a generation, most likely. Oh, yeah. Unless it gets eclipsed by something else, which is horrible to think about. And we definitely hope that that doesn't happen. So um, next week. I am planning on a miracle sewed because all we need is a miracle. All, I all need we need is, is you. you. No, it's all I need. All is I you. need is you. I was paraphrasing. Oh, yes, we need a good old miracle sewed and a little bit of lightness. And so we're going to get that next week, provided I can get all the research done in time before we get well, into it. We need, we need a palate cleanser. There are, uh, well, I was thinking about, there are several baseball riots I've not gotten to. <laughs> There's always a good so baseball. What about Cleveland? Fun. Cleveland's always good for well, I'm, <laughs> something I, ridiculous. I'm not going to do that yet. I'm on my way to Cleveland, so I'm not yeah, going to jinx right. myself. So. <laughs> But we'll see. It's definitely going to be something lighthearted we're going to do on the next episode because yeah. we need it as hosts and we have a feeling that you need it as listeners. Yep. So. I think so. This has been Grenfell Tower Fire, uh, episode three. Mm-hmm. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.